Hello, I'm Matt Baum, and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. We're on a podcast search for the entertainment that changed the lives of queer people. On this week's episode, The Golden Girls, All in the Family, and Will and Grace. My guest this week is Jim Colucci, author of numerous books about the behind-the-scenes stories of the making of classic TV shows. In his work, he's had opportunities to interview greats like Norman Lear, Betty White, and B. Arthur, but the really good stories are about what happened after the interviews were over. We'll have that conversation in a minute. And hey, don't forget to head over to mattbound.com to subscribe to my cute little newsletter. Also, take a look at my YouTube channel where I post stories about film and TV history. I just posted a new video about the Golden Girls. And head over to my Patreon to support the Sewers of Paris and watch hours of bonus videos about queer pop culture. Now, here's my conversation with Jim. Well, this week I'm speaking with Jim Colucci, author of Golden Girls Forever and the co-author with Norman Lear of All in the Family, the show that changed television. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, happy to happy to be here. So what is the entertainment that changed your life? Can I just say a format in general? I mean, I could name a show and it would be the Golden Girls, but the format, the sitcom format in general changed my life. I don't know how it doesn't do that for everyone, because if you're growing up in any less than ideal circumstances and isn't anyone, isn't everyone growing up in less than ideal circumstances in some way, the sitcom is such comfort. It is real life reflected back to you, but through this prism where everything comes out funny and all I, all problems are solved in 21 minutes. People are beautiful and they have they live in beautiful homes and dress well. I, I it's it's so influential to me because it reflects American culture and it also affects American culture as TV does both. And really, no matter where you live, I would say you are somewhat provincial in terms of you understand the culture of your city or your state, but TV is national and shows you other types of people, other races, other religions, other people in other areas of the country, and really broadens your horizons, shows you what's possible. And yes, you could say that about all TV, you could say that about film, but the sitcom does all that plus makes it funny. What were the first sitcoms you remember watching? The first sitcoms I remember watching would be things that were on after school that appealed to little kids. So mm-hmm. I remember watching The Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island and uh, probably Partridge Family uh, and Bewitched. Whatever was on, I was a, a kid, a little kid in the, in the mid-70s. And so mid-70s syndication was probably all those 60s shows. So anything that was in syndication when I was really little would be my formative influences. What are the things that characterize a sitcom? Like what characterizes something as a sitcom? Well, the lines are blurring all the time and they're blurring more and more every day as different inventive media and different streamers reinvent comedy all the time. But traditionally, and especially in the era in which I discovered them, sitcoms were a half an hour long. They uh, were about a specific set of of characters who were on every week, who were in a specific situation that was exploited for the comedy every week. If it was Hogan's Heroes, it was the same prisoners of war in the same prisoner of war camp every week, getting up to different adventures. If it was Gilligan's Island, it was the same seven castaways on the same island. So it's it's a combination of character, uh, a regular character and regular situation with new stimuli and new uh, reasons for telling story about those same people in a comedic way in half an hour. Who are your favorite characters? Uh, well, of all time, it's so hard to say. I, uh, any of the Golden Girls you could pick. The Golden Girls is at the top of my list for everything. Um, but who doesn't love Maxwell Smart and 99? Oh, my God, I love 99. And the way that she put up with an idiot 
and let him take the glory. But she was really the smart one. I mean, I, maybe that wasn't too feminist, but it was just so relatable. Who doesn't feel like they have to put up with an idiot who takes all the credit? And uh, yet you're still on a team with this person and have to prevail. So, oh, yeah, there, I. I, I can't even name how many characters I've loved. Mary Richards, who doesn't love Mary Richards and and uh, and uh, and Dick Van Dyke's character, Rob Petrie. It's you could name them so many. You said that um, something that was helpful for you with sitcoms or at least something that was important about them was, um, I guess, understanding the culture that they reflect the culture in which they're made. Was it helpful for you, like as a kid learning about what what is life? What is this world I live in? Yes, it was, but also it wasn't. And that's what's so funny about TV. And I would say today, because the broadcast standards are a little looser mm-hmm. uh, than they were, and because there are streaming platforms where the standards are very much looser, today you can really reflect a lot more of real life on television. But when I was discovering TV in that era of the mid-70s and watching things that were made before I was born in the 60s, I wasn't getting a realistic portrayal of life. It, it, not that sitcoms always have to be realistic because they're heightened for comedy, but the 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 amount of humanity, the the slice of humanity that sitcoms were allowed to portray was so narrow. You couldn't show interracial anything. In fact, TV was so white back then that there wouldn't it wouldn't even be interracial. There wouldn't be black protagonists at all in, in most shows until Norman Lear's uh, shows came around. You couldn't show anything about gay life. You couldn't show uh, so many parts of the world and of the human condition that you need to know about as an adult. But so that's, I I would say I didn't get a good good education in humanity. What I find so fascinating, I was born in late 1969. And what I loved watching about those 60s sitcoms was... I was fascinated with the 60s because I thought, what kind of crazy world was I born into? Apparently, right before I was born, the man went to the moon and that had been a a focus of the decade. And yet there was this war going on in Vietnam that really people were either for or against and it didn't seem to make much sense. And the decade started out so buttoned up and with this Camelot fantasy of the Kennedys. And then all of a sudden Kennedy is killed and the, the Vietnam starts and everybody starts growing their hair out and doing drugs and there's a sexual revolution. And it's just the the difference, even if you watch 60s sitcoms, if you use them as a time capsule, it, the difference between a show like the Dick Van Dyke show or Leave it to Beaver in the very early 60s with something made at the end of the 60s, which is still sanitized and still not really showing the turmoil, or turmoil that's going on in the world. And yet, at least you see the physical changes in people with the with the mustaches and the flower power and the long hair. And you, you just think, what happened in this span of 10 years that's so crazy? And so up until Norman Lear's All in the Family in 1971, which is why I was so glad to get to write a book about the show with Norman, the 60s, 60s TV was so tame compared to what was really going on out there in the world. And so it really wasn't doing service to what the life was like in the sixties, but I only learned that later. So what was good for me about watching TV and learning was that, as I said, we all have the tendency to be provincial and think that the way our little town works is the way the world works. And I grew up, I happened to grow up in a suburban town, 20 miles outside New York city in New Jersey. So yet it had its conservative ways, but it had its more forward thinkers, maybe compared to some other parts of the country, but 
again, you know, I, I was used to a certain socioeconomic background and, and TV showed me that there were people far richer than I and far poorer than I. And look at that. It, it, I need to expand my horizon. So it just really always kept my mind on the on the path of kind of exploring who other types of people were, because I, re- I realized that, oh, you turn on the TV and you see people who are different from you. When you were growing up, you said it was uh, just outside of New York. Did you have a sense for um, the diversity in New York in terms of cultural diversity and socioeconomic diversity? Like how, how much was that something that was a part of your life? Not much because the suburb I lived in was almost all white. Uh, in fact, it was almost all of certain few ethnicities. It was Jewish, Italian, and a little bit of maybe Irish, German, and Dutch in there. Very few Asian Americans, a few, but very few. So it was really, again, it was not the world, but it, to me as a little kid, it was my world. And so getting to see other people on TV was very important. Um, New York was a world away because my parents just, my, my mother had developed a phobia of New York, having worked there for many years and commuted into the city. And so we didn't go in all that often, but I do remember when we would go into the city, I remember being a really little kid and seeing an interracial couple holding hands, walking down the street. I don't remember whether it was a black man and a white woman or reverse. I just remember like my eyes bugging out of my head and my mother being like, stop staring. But I didn't know that happened in real life. I thought maybe that was something TV had made up because when it would come on my TV, I didn't think my parents were too pleased about it. So uh, I just, again, you know, it was, New York was 20 miles away, but when you're a little kid and you don't have a car, (laughs) that 20 miles is a big distance. When did you start getting out and exploring the world on your own? Well, it doesn't everybody get out a little bit, but little by little as they hit their teens and uh, and then certainly college. I went to college in Philadelphia, a big city. Uh, by then, I certainly knew that my town was not the whole world. But uh, yeah, I would I would say college, of course, broadens everybody. And then going out after college, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a bit. I, I had a couple of assignments in Midwestern cities that were also a different experience. Uh, I moved into New York City and then started coming to LA. So, you know, it's, it, as with everybody, as age brings independence and independence brings uh, exploration. So watching TV and in particular sitcoms in the 70s through the 80s, there would have been a, a couple, not many, but opportunities to see queer people on screen. I, I'm curious to what extent you were aware of them and where you saw them, what you thought of them. I am fascinated by how early some shows dared show queer characters. And again, I go back to All in the Family in the fifth episode of the first season. So airing in early 1971, filmed in 1970, they had Tony Geary play a possibly gay character who was friends with Mike. And Archie turns out to have a guy at the bar whom he idolizes, and he turns out to actually be gay. We never find out really about Mike's friend. And I didn't see that in its first run because I was only a year old, but it would be on in syndication and I'd catch it. And every once in a while, the pattern of these older shows tended to be that, especially the more well-intentioned and liberal ones that were trying to push the envelope, would be that there'd be a gay character once in the run of the show. And it would often be, I always say it would be the best friend who, who you never heard of before or since. And it would be, a, the pattern would be, oh, my friend is coming to town and he has a big announcement. He was always the biggest ladies man and I can't wait to see him and go out on the town with him and pick up women. Mm-hmm. And then the guy comes to town and his secret is that he's gay. And the protagonist has a momentary freak out. Oh, what does this mean? I have to reevaluate our friendship and what all these, has this all been a lie? 
And by the end of the 21 minutes, because all problems are solved in 21 minutes, the protagonist says, you know what? It doesn't matter. You've always been my best friend and you always will be. And then you never hear from that character again. Mm -hmm. Cheers did that storyline with a baseball player, friend of Sam. Sam's uh, dear John did that story with uh, a man who John uh, Lacey was friends with. Uh, I remember that story. There was a trans version of the story on the Jeffersons, which was very early and groundbreaking. But it would be that the queer character comes to town and uh, and and he's afford he she he or she is afforded some dignity. Um, and then but you never hear from them again. But when you're a kid and you're looking for anything, any kind of message that that relates to what you're feeling inside and are told in most other areas of media is wrong. That's a lifeline. So those shows are very important. And of course, with time, with shows like Ellen and Will and Grace and beyond that, now we have luckily a plethora of shows showing the full spectrum of LGBT. Uh, I hope for today's kids, it's different, but I hope today's kids know back in the day, as they say, you had to really look for coded messages. And then there were the actors who seemed very gay, but it, and it, the joke was kind of would go over kids' heads, but it would be Paul Lind or Charles Nelson Riley where they would seem gay um, and they would make kind of gay jokes on shows like Hollywood Squares, but it was never spelled out. Was that a lifeline for you? Was it something you were aware of um, responding to? I wasn't aware that it was a lifeline as a kid because you know, you're in a certain amount of denial as a kid that this is really you, especially if you're eight years old and the character who comes to town is a flamboyant gay man. And that can scare you as much as anything else, because you think I'm not that, or I don't want to be that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it, but as a kid, you're scared by it. So I wouldn't say I knew it was a lifeline as a really little kid. I do remember as a teen, when there would be a movie of the week that would have a gay theme, I would be dying to watch it and hoping I could get some time alone where I wasn't being watched watching it. But I remember when I was probably 15, there was a TV movie on CBS. I, I can't say I recommend it because it's kind of lurid and creepy. Actually, I just saw it on YouTube and it's divided up into like eight or 10 parts on YouTube. And I watched them recently. It's called Welcome Home, Bobby. And it's real. I can't believe this movie was on CBS. And I just happened to catch it when I was babysitting one night. And it is about a young a high school age boy who has a girlfriend, but he goes i don't know if he goes to a gay bar i forget but he meets this man who kind of takes him home with him and i guess they have sex it's not spelled out but then he's kind of the the like he's kind of the twink or the kept boy of this older man and everybody in town finds out the guys on his swim team try to drown him and his father wants to disown him but it's not presented as this is this terrible sin this kid committed uh, it's, it's presented as this kid is finding himself and has to stand up to people who are pre preventing him from doing that. The part that I say is lurid, of course, is that he's underage and he finds this older guy with stuff that's problematic, but I couldn't believe it as I was watching it. I was like, is that what this happens? This is, and it's on CBS. So you never know who you're affecting a neighbor of mine, uh, who I just have gotten to know in the past few years. And I've, I've gotten very friendly with turns out to have been a producer of this movie in the nineties that meant a lot of me, a lot to me calling called doing time on maple drive where one of the subplots is kind of the golden boy son comes out and particularly the mother can't handle it. And it's very realistic melodrama and the, you feel the pressure that this young son has on him. And so even in my twenties, there would be something on TV that would really help me keep on going. And, and now I live next door to the producer. It's the world is, 
Life is funny and the world is small. So you'd have been getting out and going into the world and going to college around the mid 80s, right? I started college in 87. So that must have been a particularly um, challenging time to be discovering the gay community. It w- I, and I didn't. So mm-hmm. that, that's how challenging it is. It was a challenging time because if you think of Reagan's America, what was going on, it was in the middle of the crack epidemic. So cities had really fallen hard and fallen far. And so there were parts of Philadelphia, there were places right off campus where there were terrible attacks and killings and and including killings of students or attacks on students. And so that, of course, had everybody's families on edge and had everybody. The message was be very careful. It was a hard time to feel like you'd be a target. And so especially you add to that the the fear of the gay community that straight people had once AIDS became prevalent. And you add the fear that you would have as a gay person to just meet someone and have sex and worry about catching HIV, uh, which was at the time considered a death sentence. So just for people who weren't alive in 1987, just remember it was, it was a tough time and it was a hard time. It would have been a hard time to come out because of all those factors. It's, it's life was rough. Life was kind of violent in the cities and gay people were not afforded a lot of uh, rights or dignity and were feared in some ways. So I didn't. So the long, the end, that's a long-winded way of, of excusing myself for not coming out until 1996. What was the plan when you went to college? Were you going to study television and the story of television? Was that something on your radar? Yes, but I uh, was not really allowed to do that. So yes, it was something I loved when I when in high school when you have to take those aptitude tests for what career should you do. Mine always came out columnist or journalist or critic or reviewer. And yet I went to college to study computer science and marketing. So go figure. Um, I But that was familial pressure. Uh, in college, I would just keep my sanity because I hated computer science so much. I would do whatever I could to be in the arts that would I would give me time. I wish I had gotten a little bit into performing, but I didn't. Uh, or, or writing for some of the performers, which would have been fun. Um, but... I did. Uh, I wrote for the school newspaper and the school uh, like entertainment magazine and took writing classes. And so I did whatever I could to kind of keep that part of my brain alive and keep myself sane. But I didn't actually pursue entertainment writing until uh, as a TV writer, as an aspiring TV writer, I started in the late 90s. And then as an actual journalist writing about television, I didn't start until about the millennium, until about uh, 1999 or 2000, when I got a couple of uh, helpful breaks that got me into that industry. What was life like for you? Like, you go to college and then you come out into the world. And I I think you said um, D.C. Was that where you headed next? Yeah, I lived in D.C. for a year right after college. And that was what an amazing city. And if there had been a good place to come out, I often look back and say that would have been the place to come out because the DuPont Circle community and the LGBT community was so strong. And it's a it's a very liberal minded city, even though we were living under the under, you know, H.W. Bush, the first at the time. Um, But it was still a very conducive city. And I had I happened to have at the job I was working. My boss was gay and he was always trying to out me, which was funny. And, and he did out, uh, he did convince a few of my coworkers to come out. So uh, apparently I worked at a very gay company and who knew, but it was, it, it would have been supportive is my point. And yet I wasn't ready. So didn't happen in 1991. Where were you working? What kind of work? I was working for a management consulting company, building computer systems that 
scanned document images. And uh, it's, it's actually now it's very common. But you know how when you get your bank statement, they'll have images of your checks on the statement. That's the kind of thing that we were pioneering. Like, oh, an actual image of something can be included in a file that is either kept in the files at the insurance company or is part of your credit card bill. And so it was not very creative at all. It was very, I guess that would be left-brained. It was very left-brained to programming. And yet, you know, that's a challenge too. That was a challenge for a good amount of time. And then until it no longer was, and then I didn't want to do it anymore. What was the breaking point for leaving that job? Well, a couple of things, and it's not like courage, but there, there was no courage really involved. It was more pragmatic, which was that, uh, I was, I happened to have lucked into this one programming language that was very easy. And yet most people, for some reason, found it very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so for two years at this company in DC and then in New Jersey, and then elsewhere, I said those Midwestern assignments I talked about, I was like the resident expert in this programming language where everybody just thought, wow, how do you do that? And I was just like, my God, this is so easy. What was and the I'm language? not good at computers. It just happened to be really easy. I don't even think it exists anymore. It was a, this company was called FileNet and uh, they had a programming language called Workflow. It just was so simple. And for some reason, most people just, I guess, didn't get to take the training classes in that I did. So they never really got to see how easy it was. So I felt like I had discovered this trick, this gimmick. And then after a couple of years, the company wanted me to do different kinds of assignments and that language was going to get phased out. And I thought, okay, first of all, I got lucky for two years but I don't want to press my luck because I really am not good at this and I don't like it. And when I don't like something, then I'm even worse at it because I, I don't know if most people are like this, but I found this out about myself in high school and college. And this is another reason why I shouldn't have studied what I did in college, because if I love something, I amaze myself at what I can do. But the, the flip side of that is when I don't like something, there's no amount of studying or effort that I can put in. That's going to make it sink into my head. When I had to study chemistry and physics in college, there was no amount of studying that was going to get that in my head because I hate it. I, I, I don't care at all about why things react the way they do, why bridges stand the way they do. I don't care. Said I'm never going to care. So that was a problem. Um, and so I felt that way about this work, that I had lucked into this one language that I had really done well, but I was about to hit a wall. And then the other thing was, and it comes, it kind of was all bundled up with the coming out idea, was... I was living in DC where it would have been easy to come out and where I might've been taking a few baby steps in my head, but then I had to leave DC to go on assignments and in Appleton, Wisconsin and Chattanooga and less gay friendly places. And those assignments could be up to like six months at a time where I'd be living alone in a hotel room out of a suitcase. And I would see all my friends from college and high school getting on with their lives. They were meeting people. They were most, they were all straight. Mostly they they were meeting spouses. They were getting married. They were even having kids. And I was like, I I can't spend my twenties living out of a suitcase in Appleton, Wisconsin, doing something I hate. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll lose my mind. So something has to, has to give. So it's, it's personal and and business pressure, I guess. Hmm. When did you start getting into work? That was, that was more creatively fulfilling. I, after a couple of different types of jobs. I kept trying to inch further into more creative work that I would do as a day job, I guess I would say, that I might even consider my career. So I worked at an advertising agency. Even then, the division I was in was all numbers-based. It wasn't creative. So it was kind of like having your face pressed against the glass, looking at what you really would like to be doing. Um, But 
the, I got a good, I got a break and that's the journalistic break I mentioned, which I was, uh, my husband, who was then just my boyfriend, uh, Frank DeCaro was writing for TV guide and he had covered the Sopranos quite a bit before, even before it premiered, he was on set and interviewing people for this new little show that HBO was going to put on and who knows if it'll be a hit. And of course, then once it was a monster hit, so we're talking, I guess this is about 1999, 2000. Um, he, the, his editor wanted him to go to a casting call, an open casting call that the Sopranos was doing in New Jersey in quite near my hometown in Harrison, New Jersey at the high school there. And it was an open call. And so uh, the whole world was invited come audition for the Sopranos. And what ended up happening, which now to us shouldn't be a surprise, but it took them by, by storm then was they expected a couple hundred people and tens of thousands poured into this town that was accessible only by a couple of different highway exits. And the town was overwhelmed and the cops came and shut down the entire town, but backing up a bit, they needed someone to go. They wanted TV guide, wanted someone to go undercover and report what it was like to go to that casting call. And they asked Frank to do it. And at the last minute they said, wait a minute, you've been on set with them. They're going to recognize you when you walk in, you can't do it. And then they said, well, we know Jim wants to write. And I guess it helped to have an Italian last name. And so they said, send him. So I went and actually I didn't leave enough time to get there because I didn't know the town would be overwhelmed. And so by the time I got to their exit on 280, I-280, the whole town was shut down. By the time I worked my way into the town and parked and got to that high school, I just talked to a lot of disappointed people who had been turned away. And that became my story. But that was an in to writing for TV Guide. And then I just kind of viewed my career from then on. Okay, I can work this day job that's semi-creative. It's at an ad agency, even though I'm supporting the creatives with numbers. But then maybe at night or on my own time, I can keep exploring this journalism thing, TV, writing my own TV shows, writing about TV. And that'll kind of keep me sane by rounding out my life into a more creative area. So that's what I did for many years for, for at least uh, the next three or four years until I left my day job full time to write my first book about Will and Grace. How did that first book come to pass? That was being in the right place at the right time. And really that's where you have to say, you know, I believe in God because I was already obsessed with the show. The show had started in 1998. I was already trying to write my own TV shows. And here the first, for the first time a show is being created to have a gay male lead. And then it turns out a secondary gay male, although they didn't in the very beginning have Jack. Um, and so I was on, that show was again, one of those shows that was on my radar from the moment I first heard that it was a, an idea. And then of course, thrilled to see it get on the air. There's, there's actually a story, a storyline on Will and Grace. Uh, I don't know if you watched the show, but there's a storyline where Jack is stalking Kevin Bacon for the first few years of the show. He's obsessed with Kevin Bacon, who is a famous New Yorker. So it makes sense. And later on in the series, Jack gets a job as Kevin Bacon's assistant. And the first assignment Kevin gives him is find out who's stalking me. And I felt the same way when I got this Will and Grace assignment, because I felt like I had been stalking these people trying to get a job on this show. I'd been trying to meet the writers. I'd been trying to send them writing samples, which you're not allowed to do. I really had been trying to find a way in there, of course, from New York, 3000 miles away, which is even harder because the show was made in Los Angeles. And just as luck would have it, I uh, had written a book proposal for the book that I would like to write, because now that I had been writing for TV Guide, I had a little bit more confidence in that I could write a longer form about 
the show I'd always wanted to chronicle, which was the Golden Girls, because no one had and I couldn't believe it. And I wanted to do it before anybody else did and before the ladies passed away. So I had written a book proposal for a book about the Golden Girls. And then a, through a friend, she told me, oh, I know a book agent and she's got a deal with NBC and she's looking for somebody to write a book about the Today Show. Do you want to audition for that? And I think the lesson that I learned in this is say yes to everything, you know, and fake it till you make it. Because I am the worst possible person to write a book about the Today Show. I am a complete night owl. I would say that I could count the number of times I've watched the Today Show live on one hand because that seldom am I awake at that hour. Uh, but I said, sure, yeah, I want to audition. And so I sent in some clips from TV Guide and from other places I had written, and I sent this book proposal. And I didn't get the Today Show gig, which I'm glad, but I did get that agent. And she said, by the way, there's this other assignment. They want somebody to write a book about Will and Grace. Would you be into that? And that's where, you know, you hear the heavens sing. And that's where I thought, oh, they're going to they're going to be on to me, because the moment I show up there to interview them for the first time, I'm going to walk in the door and they're going to be like, it's you, <laughs> you're the crazy person who's been stalking us. Maybe other people have been stalking them, too. So maybe I wouldn't have stood out. But I don't know. But it just worked out perfectly. And so that was a great experience because it was a show that was in production. And as a fan, I always and whenever I liked any show. I always had that feeling that I wanted to be able to crawl into the TV and look around the set and pick up the knickknacks and see how these characters supposedly lived. And now for a show in production that I really loved, I was getting a chance to do that. Never mind a show that was saying so much about the queer community that would affect my daily life. I mean, that show was the reason I came out to my parents when I did, because I had been with my husband since 1996. And that show, ironically, when I got the assignment that I would be writing about it, it was late 2002. I learned I would be writing the book that I got the job and I would have to start writing it in 2003. And so I had been wondering when am I going to pull off the bandaid and tell my parents and I had been putting it off and putting it off. And then Thanksgiving 2002 comes and I did the time just felt right. And I had my mother alone in the kitchen and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is, sad because I should have been doing it because it was nice. It was kind to her to tell her the truth, but I really was being a little bit more mercenary than that thinking, okay, I'm about to write a book about this queer show where I'm going to be interviewed and have to tell my truth. I'm not going to lie. And people were upset at the time that Sean Hayes wasn't very out about his own life. And so I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to take that approach. I understand what, what he was saying, but I wasn't going to take that approach. And so I thought, you know, I have to do this even just for my job. I have to tell my parents so that they can be prepared when I, when I, a year from now, when this book comes out. And so that ironically, Will and Grace led to me coming out to my family and ever the last people who didn't know in my world. And then that very night, the show aired a repeat where Jack comes out to his mother on Thanksgiving and I had it on and my parents were wandering in and out of the room because they were still processing and they weren't, they were never TV and sitcom people in the first place. So I don't know how much they were paying attention to it or how much of it soaked in, but it soaked in for me, the irony of, Oh, I came out to them partly because of the show. And now I'm watching an episode of the show that's mirroring what just happened to me. And uh, you know, so I can't underestimate how valuable that experience was to me professionally too, because it put my name on the map in terms of writing TV books. It was a longer form piece that it was fun to be able to see that I could do that. Uh, and I got to meet all of these people that I had always admired. 
So you were like there on set. Were you able to be a, a company, the show uh, for uh, for filming? Yes. So I, as, as so many things happen with Hollywood and with book publishing, it's hurry up and wait. So I found out in late 2002 that I got the book. I quit my job in, in, uh, in advertising in March of 2003 and was like, see you suckers. I'm going to Hollywood to write a book. And guess what? They didn't get me access to Will and Grace until December. So for I quit my job. And then for nine months, I was like, okay, that was premature. I don't have a paycheck coming in. Um, But yes, so it it ended up happening that for the last three shows before the Christmas break of 2003, so this would be season six of Will and Grace, I was on set. And I don't actually know whether they intended to give me carte blanche. The the subhead of the book is fabulously uncensored. The book is called Will and Grace Fabulously Uncensored. And yet it was published by NBC And it certainly wasn't going to be completely uncensored. Like if I had found out some deep, dark secret about somebody, NBC was not going to let me publish it. So it wasn't going to be uncensored completely. And yet it ended up being more uncensored than I think anybody thought because they forgot I was there, which was which was an immense compliment to me because I guess they got comfortable with me and they stopped being defensive, as most shows would be having an outsider observe them. Um, And so I really ended up just, yeah, interviewing everybody in their dressing rooms when they had a break going to those three tapings and hanging out on the floor and watching what was going on and just observing and taking notes. And, uh, and I do feel like I saw some stuff that maybe they wouldn't have wanted me to see. And that went in the book, but it was, yeah, it was fantasy camp. If if you're a, 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 I mean, I would say gay kid. I was in, I was a gay 33 year old at the time, but I felt like a kid, but if you're a gay kid obsessed with this show, that's making history and putting your community on the map. And then they, they say, Hey, want to come hang out for three weeks and just, explore and we'll forget you there and you can just look around. Oh my God, it was a dream. What was the response when the book came out? The response was quite positive and it's the most TV book. And this is going to be me being a little immodest for a minute. One of the reasons I wanted to write a TV book in the first place, including the one that I had first proposed about the golden girls way back when was back in the old days before the internet. If you loved a show and wanted obsessive amounts of detail, like I did, there were very few places to get them. You could, there was no internet. You could, as I did, you could read the Q and a columns in your local TV guide. And maybe somebody had asked a question about your show that week and you'd get a paragraph's worth of answer, but you'd never really be able to say, well, why is the costumes? Why are the costumes like that? Or where is it shot? Where, how did they, how did they accomplish that crowd scene or with special effects? Or how did, why did that story happen that way? And why did this person react that way? Where did that joke come from? Where's that reference? There was nowhere to ask those things. And so I always wanted to, and when it, the only place would be a book and a lot of books that were published because of the way publishing works and their long time frames and everything would be kind of done as these quickie books without much detail. And they would just be sold for quick profit and then intended to be forgotten. So books wouldn't be all that satisfying either. So I always wanted to write a satisfying book about a TV show. And I feel that that's what I did with Will and Grace. I, I packed so many details in that book that pro- I don't think the publisher or NBC were expecting, but I was pleased to find that the show and the network were very happy with it. And I got a lovely call from David Cohan, one of the creators of Will and Grace saying to me that he, a couple of weeks after it came out and he, I know that they were very busy. It came out in the height of their next season, but he said, I finally had a chance to sit down with this book and I am so impressed. I have to say the word I would use for it is literary 
And I never thought I would say that about a TV book. And that meant so much to me. Because again, it's somebody who you idolize as having created something so special to you, who appreciates not only my writing, but the fact that I captured the magic that they had created and, and would preserve it for posterity because that's, that was my intention. I want other generations of people to know how special Will and Grace is and was. And you said this all got started with um, interest in doing a book about Golden Girls. What about that show was, why was that show so important to you? Something about that show should have been an early indication that I was gay. But uh, I, in watching shows as a kid, I think that I always was attracted a little bit more to female protagonists than to male. I did love shows with Gilligan or with, as I said, Dick Van Dyke. I, I loved it all. But when there'd be a show about a wacky woman, like I Love Lucy, or an outspoken woman like Maud, I, it, something really spoke to me. Maybe it's because they were, you know, I had a lot of women I respected in my life, and I like to see them get the chance to speak out more than they maybe were. And maybe it's just something about a gay man. You I identify with a female character sometimes or about, I don't know. But when I saw that, again, reading the very first notice that there would be a show possibly called the golden girls. It's a pilot. It may happen. It may not. And when I saw that the cast, the proposed cast was B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan and Betty White. I didn't know it was still getting, no one did at the time, but it was, wait, it's Maud and Vivian and Sue Ann Nivens in one show. This is a comedy super group of people I've loved in other shows. And, and when is, even then I knew I was 15. There's never been a show about older women before. They usually only have to be part of the ensemble and you don't get that much of them. This is going to be about them. And it's written by the woman who, who created soap, which I adored and, you know, which died prematurely. I'm in. And so from moment one, I was tracking that show. And then it went on to be even more than I could ever ex- have expected, because not only were those actresses the best actresses in TV at the time and maybe ever, but the writing was so clever and it, the way it tackled subject areas that needed to be talked about that never had been, but did it hilariously funny. Everything about it was first rate. And I think that I've, I've written in both books, I've ended up writing about the Golden Girls, about why I think the show appeals to the LGBT community. And there's a lot of reasons. I think the most superficial reason for me was that I've always been sarcastic. I've always been a Dorothy type. And Dorothy's even tall and Italian. So here's this tall Italian character who has a a, a smart mouthed answer for every stupid question that comes her way and is smart enough to fight with people who would do her harm and do her friends harm. And so that's a fantasy that you as a gay guy who gets put down. Sometimes you have a bitchy perfect comeback that'll put people in their place. And the other superficial part about it is that these are women who looked great. Even when they woke up at two in the morning and have cheesecake, they were in full hair and makeup. So uh, who does, what gay guy doesn't think that's fabulous, but what I've written about is that the golden girls is a surrogate family. And this is a group of women, only two are biologically related, but they have decided to become a unit and they live together, not just out of convenience and financial necessity, which is part of it, but also they really view themselves as a family to the point where they talk about if one of us gets sick and needs an operation, that's what mortgages are for. We'll mortgage the house. We'll take care of you. We're in it till the end. And so it really struck, even though as, a 15 year old, I didn't really know what in it till the end means. You can't envision being old at that point, but you do understand a chosen family and you do, as you grow older and you are out, you do end up making your own chosen family a lot of the time as I have. And, and many people I know have. And so here's a show that 
was one of the first, if not the first shows to show a surrogate family and show it as a valid family unit. And I think beneath everything, that's what appeals so much. And so put that all together. And if I ever, if, as I said, I've always wanted to write a TV book that did justice to a show that I wanted to know more about. There was never a show that I had wanted to know more about than the Golden Girls and no one had done it yet. And so that's why, okay, 2002, I'm writing that book proposal. This is going to be the first thing I'm going to try to do. So did that Will and Grace book open the door to that dream of doing the Golden Girls book? It did. It did. Because having that on your resume shows you can do it. And uh, I had then an agent from that experience who could go out and sell the Golden Girls book. It was not easy in 2006, as I finally did, to sell a book on the Golden Girls. And it shows how, time, how times have changed between then and now. Because... There is, there still is such a built-in ageism and misogyny to media, and so many companies still are run by the old guard, and I say that sometimes meaning old straight white guys, um, that particularly back then, the same pattern kept happening, where my agent would approach what would often be a young woman or a young gay guy at a publishing company, a junior person and say, here's a book proposal about the Golden Girls. And that person would say, oh my God, what a great idea. I can't believe it. I love that show. I'm going to run this, bring this up in our next meeting and run it up the flagpole. And, and it, eventually it would hit some level of resistance where there'd be some senior person. And people, by the way, in publishing love to show how much, how little they know about television and what, how much disdain they have for it. So they would even, they would even emphasize their ignorance about saying a show about old women that was on 15 years ago. Why would we do a book on that? And so, you know, meeting over. And so we would have, we would keep having that experience. And so that in 2006, it was not easy to sell a book on the Golden Girls, which is just so funny to me because now audiences online and anytime there's any kind of story about the golden girls on, on any online site, it's such clickbait. You can tell that they're just pumping them out because people have a voracious appetite for this show. But in 2006 publishing didn't want to know that what ended up happening was through luck, through a friend, I happened to be at a friend's wedding and one of her group, her bridesmen was a gay man who was an editor at an LGBT press and they were looking to start a new series of guidebooks called the Q Guides about topics that interested the queer community. And so the yellow series, they would be all rainbow colored on their spine. And the yellow series was going to be about pop culture. And they said, hey, the, this editor who I became friends with said, why not make our first pop culture guide, Guide to the Golden Girls, since you have some of the research done, you have a proposal ready, you know, we, we're, we're ready to go. And so uh, that's how I started writing a book called The Q Guide, which really focused on the queer friendly elements of the show. And then it was only many years later, 10 years later, that I found a mainstream publisher to publish Golden Girls Forever. Part of that delay was due to rights holders and photos and all those technical things. But it was it took a long time for the world to change. So that book, Golden Girls Forever, is so authoritative and complete, and you've got such great access to people who are involved in the making of the show. Uh, you must have, um, got, what a treasure trove to be, to, to be able to talk to those people and, and discover their stories, their experiences. It was amazing. And I, that's another reason why I say things happen the way they're supposed to, I guess, even though it's frustrating at the time to live through it. Because getting to do the Q Guide in 2006 
was my entree into Betty White's living room and B. Arthur's living room and Rue McClanahan's living room. Estelle was already too ill to, to participate, but I did speak to her, her nurse and her caretaker and her assistant and all these different people to round out my portrait of her. But thank God I did sit down with those women in 2006 when they were all available because by 2016, when the book, I finally had a contract to do this book, all, all were gone except Betty and Betty was so busy. I wouldn't have been able to get her. So yeah, it was really amazing getting to hear the first person stories from the four women I admired from three of the four women I admired from these writers, many of whom went on to create other shows. I adore like Mark Cherry with desperate housewives or Mitch Hurwitz with arrested development. Uh, and so it's, it, again, it's like going to fantasy camp, but I'm really lucky that I started on the early side because time marches on. Do you have any strong memories or things that stick with you about when you got to speak to those women? Oh, all of them. In fact, I've told stories on stage about what happened at each day with them because each one was different and memorable for a different reason. My interview with Rue, which was the last one, was in New York in May of uh, 2006. And it was done on camera because I also had been doing interviews and still do for the Archive of American Television, uh, part of the TV Academy. And so my interview with Rue is actually online. You can watch it. And I wouldn't recommend you watch it because I don't think I come off really great in it. I was doing, I was making a classic mistake. First of all, the archive interviews are meant to be like four or five hours long and about a person's entire career. And so that poor subject usually is exhausted by the time that's over. But I had my conflicting agenda, which is I needed to really drill deep into the Golden Girls, not all this other stuff in her career. And so it had been agreed with her manager, her agent, that I could pepper her with Golden Girls questions during breaks or while she was having her makeup touched up or whatever. And in addition to the stuff I would ask on camera, just because I knew I'd need more. And the problem with that is then you're giving the poor person no break whatsoever. So I was hounding Rue in her apartment, following her around, asking her Golden Girls questions. Like if she had to get, to get a glass of water or get her makeup done or they had to change a tape, I was on her asking Golden Girls questions. And so I was annoying her that way. And then the other thing I was doing, which is it's, it's a unique thing about those archive interviews, they give you pages and pages, and I mean like 30 pages, single spaced, of all the questions they want to ask this person, because they're usually asking about a 40 or 50 year career and all of these projects in detail. And the problem is even in four or five hours, you can't ask all that. And so you end up having to whittle it down while you're asking, okay, well, we kind of got near that. I'm not going to go back to that. We're going to have to scratch that. Forget it. We don't have time. And so you're, you're juggling a lot of stuff. And I naively thought that maybe if I talk faster, I won't have to cut as much material and I can just ask her questions really fast. And so the worst thing you can do to someone, particularly someone in her 70s, who's already tired, who's already annoyed with you because you follow her around like a puppy, is ask her five questions at once in the fastest voice you can. So I was, I was like, okay, well, in these TV movies in the 70s, first you did this one, then you did this one in 1974, then this one in 1975 with Daphne Coleman, then you did one in 1977. Was it different from the one you did in 1978? And I would talk like that and you just, she was, her head was spinning. And there's a point in the interview where you can hear her say, if you just stop talking, I could answer the question. <laughs> and so I, I was hard, I was crestfallen at the moment. Oh my God, this woman I adore is really mad at me, but she had the all right to be. Um, but it ended up being a great experience. And I, I got to sit in her living room with her and I did calm down and, uh, and she remembered it later with me as a fun experience and she was being kind, but that's what I remember about her being 
the the geek who who was trying to accomplish too much and driving her crazy. Um, with Betty White, uh, I had gotten to L.A. I was going to be spending a few months in L.A. Luckily, because my husband was making a game show as a panelist, so I knew I had a hotel room in L.A. for two months, so I could research this book. Again, timing is everything. And so in February, when I arrived, I called Betty's assistant and asked for time on her calendar. And her assistant said she has one hour on April 9th. Take it or leave it. And I was like, that's how busy this woman was at 84. That two, I had to wait more than two, like two months to get an hour with her. And I went to her house and I, I actually had just done an interview with another set of writers from the show over lunch and had not noticed how much iced tea I had downed. And by the time I got to Betty's house, with my computer and all the stuff I had to set up, I ring the bell and I said, Betty and her assistant both answered. And I said, Betty, I am so sorry to make this the first thing I have to say, because I'm dying to meet you and talk to you, but may I use your bathroom? And she said, Oh, I don't have one. I'm that nice. I don't, I don't actually go to the bathroom. That's how nice I am. I just, when people come over, they have to go use the service station down the street. And I'm like, oh my God, she's doing shtick with me and I'm going to literally pee my pants laughing. And when she saw that she had kind of tortured me enough, she pointed me to the powder room and it was a great start for the interview because I saw how playful she is. And it's exactly what you expect from Betty White. She knows she's got that sweet image and she's got a devilish streak underneath and they're both on display at the same time. And normally when you sit with a a celebrity you're interviewing, if they tell you they have a hard out or only a certain amount of time, you really think, yeah, you know, what's going to happen is they're going to end up having a good time and they're going to blow past that heart out, which is probably fake anyway. But with Betty, uh, my recorder had been on, as it said, for an hour and one minute when her assistant came in and said, I'm sorry, that's all the time Betty has for today. She's going to be late for her next appointment. And Betty at age 84 was juggling animal activism, lots of acting work, hours where she would write in longhand thank you notes to people. She was incredible and continued at that pace almost until the very end. Um, and I remember as I was packing up and, and saying goodbye to her and we would have more time later on the phone. So it was fine. But, uh, I remember her being very philosophical saying I'm 84 now, my mother lived to 85. I don't know how much time I have, but there's so much more I want to accomplish. And, uh, and she hoped for more time and look at how much more she got till age 99. So amazing. And then just to, I will make this long story short because I've told it on stage and it can go on forever. B Arthur was the hardest person to get to do an interview. I had to phone stalk her. We played tag with uh, on phone for over a month where she would, she would seem like she was softening to the idea of doing an interview. And then I, I would say something a little bit too goody goody. And it turned out she hates goody goodies. I'd call her Miss Arthur and say how happy I was to talk to her. And she would get pissed and and tell me off and hang up. (laughs) And so she was really hard to get. And then when I did get her, she invited me to her home, which actually turned out to be a temporary home because her kids were renovating the kitchen in her actual home. And so we're in this rented house that was up the street from Betty, coincidentally. And B has her bare feet up on this coffee table that's not even hers. And she's making small talk and giving me just monosyllabic answers for the first hour. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I finally got here and she's not giving me a lot. She did then warm up. But at one point, she was a little, a little fidgety and she mumbled under her breath that I was making her misjudge Judy. And then, but she got over it. She powered through. And then at the very end came the part that I had agreed to as a condition to doing the interview, which was that I would stay and drink with her. And 
I actually had a rental car. I had to get back to Hertz in West Hollywood and she was in Brentwood and I only had like an hour and I was just was, Oh my God, I can't believe the the weirdness of this moment. I'm at B Arthur's house and I have to try to cut short having a drink with her because I have to get this car back. And I'm, I can't, what can I drink that I can even get behind the wheel and bring this car back. And she poured out a giant, a bottle of white wine into giant balloon goblets. And we made small talk for the next hour where she told me she was a big fan of hag pictures you know, like whatever happened to baby Jane. She loves seeing the, the women of old, the, the silver screen heroines of old debasing themselves <laughs> in more modern movies. And I, at the end I hugged her and I hadn't hugged anybody else, but I really felt like I'd broken through with her because the thing about B that I learned that I think most people who knew her would agree, but if you only spent a few minutes with her, you might not notice this. B had this tough exterior as Maud, as Dorothy, because she was tall, because she had a deep voice. And so the mistake that most people made when they met her, there were two mistakes you could make. You can make the one that I started making, but I wised up soon, fast, which is to be sniveling and phony. And oh gosh, gee golly gosh, it's so nice to meet you. She hated that. She hated phony. It would, you'd, be, you'd get on her shit list and then you would never get off if you kept it, kept it up. So I stopped just in time. The other, but the other worst mistake you could make with B was if you played rough with her, which is what people thought was the way to, to deal with her. They thought she's a tough broad. I'm going to dish it out at her. And the funny thing is she was the exact opposite of Betty. Betty, you could actually play a little rough with because even though she had that grandmotherly exterior, she had such inner strength. She'd serve the volley right back at you and she'd actually enjoy it. Not that people, most people did treat Betty that way, but she, you could, she could handle it. B couldn't handle it. B had that tough exterior, but she was a vulnerable, easily hurt mush ball on the inside. Very sweet, very loving very generous, but you had to get past that guarded outer layer before you'd see that. And so people who would either make the mistake of insulting her or not sticking around for more than a few minutes to get to know the real her would have trouble with her. But I felt that after that day and after those drinks and after talking hag pictures with her and really hanging out, I felt like, I, wow, I really saw the real her. She's a lovely person. And so that's why I hadn't asked anyone else. And I don't think I've ever asked anyone else, but I asked her if I could hug her at the end. And she was very stiff in my arms for the first second. And then she, I felt her relax. And I thought that was such a metaphor for what this entire experience with her was like, that I really feel that I did my due diligence, not just as a reporter, but as a person, because I wanted to get to know her, to get to know the real her. And rather than reporting on the superficial that I had read about her in most press. Gosh, well, yeah, and you can really see the um, the passion that you bring to the project on the page. I just, I, I love Golden Girls Forever because it's so um, comprehensive and and personal. Like, it, it, you can really see the the personalities of of all the subjects in there. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. And there were a lot of personalities on that show, on screen and and behind the the scenes. And uh, and I hope that we captured that. I I wish, in a way, that I could have written about every episode of the show. Uh, I, there weren't enough pages to be that they would allow me to print to do that. Um, but some episodes that don't have great backstories behind them. What the formula I wanted to use for the show and that I've used in all in the family as well was I want to tell, yes, I have to tell the stories about the episodes that are the most famous that people are dying to read about. But other than that, I want to tell the stories that not only talk about the episode that ha the, uh, that was being made that week, but they also show what life was like making that show or what the arc of that show was or what Hollywood was like or what the world was like. If it was a show about mm -hmm. a certain ism that was being tackled, 
that's important to show. So it, it, I wanted that book. I'm glad to hear you say it's personal because I wanted that book to be kind of a time capsule capsule and very personal and not just a straight chronicling of this happened this week, this happened this week. I, I wanted it to be both. And so tell me about the, um, the latest one that you've got about all in the family. Well, I'm currently working on a book about the love boat, which is a different muscle because that's a show that's beloved, but not necessarily for being groundbreaking, but for being comfort food and for having all these stars on it that we love or love to remember or who were breaking at, uh, breaking out at the time. So I have, I was years deep into that because I've take forever to do these books and I'm such a Virgo. I try to find every living guest star that I can. And I've found hundreds so far and talked to them, but in the middle of that process, I was approached to, uh, with by a publisher who said, would you like to work on a book with Norman Lear? And when that happens, you say, oh, yeah, I wasn't doing anything. Yep. Norman Lear. Sure. Yeah. When do you want me? So, you know, he was 98 at the time. He's 99. Now, when somebody says, do you want to work with a 98 year old legend on a book about his most famous show that changed the world? You say, yes, even though it's a short term deadline. So it was, we were going to have to work fast and work intensely, but in a way that was good because it would allow me to get back to the love boat in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, it was a joy working with Norman. I mean, talking about meeting your idols. I am so lucky that I got to know him and the only bummer. And this is compared to most people's COVID woes. I know this is a first world problem, but I envisioned when I said yes, that I was going to be hanging with Norman and going through photos and talking and hanging out. And then right after I agreed COVID hit. And so all of my work with Norman turned out to be zoom based. I eventually did uh, go to his house and dig through some photos with him. And then we did some press together, but uh, that's my only minor disappointment that I, I did get to meet my idol, but a lot of it was on zoom, but my God, the man just is incredible. He had such balls <laughs> to put his shows on the air. He, he is so insightful about what makes people tick and can remember details at age 99 from 50 years ago that I couldn't remember. It, it's, he's just amazing. It was a, such a joy. Yeah, gosh. And, you know, talk about like the urgency of capturing those stories because, uh, like you said, nine, 99 years old at yeah. this point. Oh, I mean, the man, knock on wood, the man has a production company that takes him beyond a uh, production deal that takes him beyond age 100. So, uh, I, I, you know, I never say anything about anybody's longevity, but obviously at age 99, we're so lucky to have him. And I do want him to get his accolades and also get his story down while he can, because it is something that people should be studying years from now. Yeah, gosh. I mean, there's so there's all in the family. And, uh, you know, when I with the work that I do, I often encounter I bump up against, you know, all the glitters and like the, the other more obscure works that yes. you know, they're, they're not they're not remembered quite so uh, energetically. But um, yeah, like the the impact that he has still, I you know, like um, Hot El Baltimore. My gosh, like such pioneering work. Yeah. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman broke yeah. ground. Jefferson's broke ground. Good times. Maud. When you think about what TV was like in the 60s, and Norman always says this, that TV was like uh, the, the standard plot would be, oh, no, honey, your boss is coming over for dinner and I burned the roast. And where, whereas that plot has its place, it's not completely outlandish that that would happen. That's what I, what I mean by when I say that TV was narrow limited to such a narrow slice of life that that was the only kind of problem a family could have because they couldn't have anything more serious because that would involve controversial topics. And we weren't allowed to talk about those. And then here comes all in the family that blows the doors off of this and is suddenly talking about racism and, and gay rights 
and poverty and politics and Vietnam. And then it spawns the Jeffersons talking even more about racism and interracial relationships. And all of these shows that came out of Norman's company, one after another, that uh, one day at a time would talk about single mothers. And there was talk about sexual assault on all of these shows. When you look at the difference between before 1971 and after 1971, that's Norman's doing. Yeah. Well, it's really appropriate. Like the, the title of the book is the show that changed television and uh, boy, oh boy, that's putting it mildly. Oh, so you're, sure, yeah. you're working on uh, the love boat next. Do you have like, yes. um, which I'm very excited for Like um, it wasn't, it was something that's a show that kind of passed me by because I was a little young when that was mostly in syndication, right. but then, you know, I uh, it's, it's come up because every celebrity that you could possibly love has been on that show at some point. That's one of the joys of it. It's got it's got this formula that it just is such comfort food. I don't know how much comfort food it would be if you never watched it when it was first on. I did as a, it, it debuted when I was just turning eight. And I do remember snowy Saturday nights when I was too young to be out and it was too cold to be out in New Jersey. And you're watching Charo Shaker Maracas in Mexico. And that's it's just such wish fulfillment in many in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the sun and the fantasy and the elegance of it that was completely exaggerated for what a real cruise is, and the tropical climbs and the exotic places, and then of course the 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 loving crew members who are such relatable, like their family, and you add to that this guest star formula where anybody who was anybody in the seventies and eighties, who was especially anybody who was anybody who was on their way up or on their way down in their career, passed by the love boat. And often in these wacky permutations that are so trippy today, I I always think of an episode where, oh, Hermione Baddeley is playing Scott Baio's grandmother because that's casting you would normally do. Oh, I'm lightheaded. you, You just see weird combinations of people that, you know, from other shows put in a mixing bowl. And, you know, today I was watching Tommy Smothers in a plot where he plays a sci fi nerd who's convinced that the librarian from his hometown, Helen Reddy is a, is a, is an alien. And yeah, I'd cast Tommy Smothers and Helen Reddy in a love story and <laughs> have him think she's an alien. Why not? You know, it's just, there's, it's trippy. It's dopey. It's it, occasionally poignant. Sometimes you almost wonder if it's by accident that it's poignant, but it's not. They did actually have some smart writers who knew how to do that too, but it's uh, it's such comfort food. And, and I chose it to write about as my next assignment, because when I was looking for the next book, I was noticing ripples in pop culture about the love boat and how there are all these meme generators where you can put yourself in the love boat opening credits. And all the times you hear the phrase, Julia Cruz director or other love boat phrases in pop culture. And it really seemed to be bubbling up and kind of growing into this critical mass. And it's growing even now that uh, until it was recently rescheduled, there was going to be a Love Boat reunion, cast reunion ab- aboard Princess Cruises this month. Um, it, it just seems like the nostalgia factor for this show, the drumbeat is growing louder. And that's something that I, I, I do have to say I'm pretty good at, determining which classic shows are waning and which ones are waxing. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this book in print because you'll get to see all of these faces of all of these people into these trippy permutations and appreciate the camp element of this show. I says, I said, maybe you had to watch it the first time as an eight-year-old in New Jersey. Maybe not. I don't know. You can catch up on it. It's uh, all of the episodes are on Paramount Plus. So luckily, it is streaming and it is available. Well, I cannot wait to see that book. Uh, the latest one, the one that's out now, is All in the Family, the show that changed television. Jim, thanks so much for joining me. 
Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks to Jim for joining me, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to everybody who makes the Sewers of Paris possible on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash mattbound to support the show and get backer rewards like stickers in the mail and exclusive bonus videos. Check out my YouTube for deep dives into queer pop culture history at youtube.com slash mattbound and my newsletter at mattbound.com. The theme song for the Sewers of Paris is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. And until next time, croissant. <laughs>